welcome to the Big Leads Press Pass podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, and today with us we have Michael Pina from SV Nation. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Liam. Absolutely, absolutely. So, as always, we'll just start with a pretty basic open question. Michael, take us on your journey through sports media from when you first realized that this was something that you wanted to do to how you ended up covering the NBA for SB Nation. So I'll keep this as brief as possible because I don't want to just send your listeners into a coma. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I've always wanted to... I've always wanted to cover the NBA. I've always wanted to write about the NBA. Um, I knew that once I stopped growing, uh, my I guess it was like my sophomore year of high school, junior year of high school, I knew that actually playing in the league was no longer an option. So uh, writing is something that I've always enjoyed independently, and any uh, opportunity to merge that with my love for NBA basketball was something that I knew that I always wanted to do. So I studied journalism in college at the University of Delaware. And when I graduated, there really weren't any jobs. Uh, you know, I graduated in 09. And the route back then was basically the popular route was still through newspapers. And, you know, there were some websites for sure that were, were hiring, but it was very difficult, I would say, to find a full-time job covering the NBA for a website at the time. So being a beat writer was kind of the route. And those were also very hard to opportunities. There were very hard to come by. So basically what I did was I took a bunch of, you know, random odd jobs and I blogged about the league and I blogged for ESPN's uh, True Hoop Network. And that was a now defunct, basically a team circuit, uh, uh, there were blogs for every NBA team, and it was kind of in this whole network uh, for ESPN. So I covered the Houston Rockets for them, and then eventually the Boston Celtics, and I'm from Boston, so that was a thrill. Uh, so I got to cover some games in person and just, you know, write and get reps. And it was pretty much all of it for free, which was a uh, bummer at the time, but the the, the great part for me was that my writing was noticed by by editors around the internet. I would email my articles to uh, people who I thought were relevant, uh, people who I thought were powerful and who had uh, some say in hiring decisions. And eventually uh, someone at Bleacher Report saw my work and I was offered a, a job covering the Los Angeles Lakers for uh, during Kobe Bryant's last season with the team, <clears throat> which was a total thrill for me. I'd moved out to Los Angeles. And so I covered them for a season, then I moved back to Boston, and I covered the Celtics for Bleacher Report. And that was during Isaiah Thomas's magical MVP year. So it was just a, the both the, the both situations were just really terrific for me, um, getting experience, meeting people around the league, uh, and from there, I, I was hired by Vice uh, to just basically blog about the NBA and do some feature work and do a little bit of reporting for them. So I did that for two years. I was laid off last February and started at SB Nation in April. So I've been there. I've been here for 
not even uh, not even a year, but it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. And so you kind of started on the um, team specific beats, and now you're sort of just a general assignment NBA guy. How did you find that transition when you first started working for Vice and sort of got the freedom to write these bigger, broader stories instead of doing the little things that come along with writing as a beat writer? Yeah, I I prefer writing broadly about the league. I feel like there are uh you're never short on storylines you're never short on interesting players and uh little subplots that are happening within teams and little you know trend pieces going on throughout the league so i love you know every night i watch uh, one or two usually two games on nba league pass and then i'll dvr uh like three or four games and the next morning i'll pick one that you know, I try to kind of uh, bar myself from not, you know, avoiding and being able to avoid blowouts. So I'll, I'll DVR like three or four games and then I'll pick uh, whatever is the most interesting or closest or uh, the one that for whatever reason I want to watch the following morning, early, very early in the morning. So I watch a lot of basketball and uh, I really love it. And all the right, I read as much as I can from beat writers and it's no knock on them. I think what their, their, their jobs are really difficult and I'm really impressed by how they dig in and, and get inside under the skin of the teams. But I love more than anything, reading kind of the, the bigger, broader pictures and the, 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 the national writers and their takes and Zach Lowe is, uh, I think anyone who covers the league or has covered the league in the past, 10 or so years probably looks up to him and everything that he does. So, uh, so yeah, um, I would say just broadly as a national writer, I think it's easier. I think it's more fun. And just as a small example, like the, I'm, I'm based in New York right now and the Atlanta Hawks are in town. And so I have an opportunity to, you know, look at what's going on with Atlanta. I'll prep for, you know, watch their past however many games and figure out which player or which what I want to write about with that team, if anything interests me. So I think I'm going to be writing a piece about Jabari Parker, and I was able to interview him this morning at their shoot around. And so it's just stuff like that, that I, I you, you just have a broader uh, range of things to write about. And the NBA is so rich that it, it's I'm never short on ideas. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this league generates storylines like uh, like few other major sports, in, in my humble opinion, of course. Uh, the other interesting thing. So you're from Boston. Did you grow up a Celtics fan? I did. Yes. <laughs> okay. Figured as much. So I was talking to Jay King from The Athletic a couple weeks ago, and he also grew up in the Boston area and was a gigantic Celtics fan growing up. But once he started writing for the team, he felt like he said he, he didn't wasn't really a fan anymore. He still obviously loved the game of basketball, loved covering the Celtics, loved his job. But as far as that actual rooting interest went, it sort of disappeared once he started working for them. So when you went to your uh, started working on the Celtics beat on your own side, did you find it was like a similar thing? To be honest, no, not at all. Um, I try my best to eliminate emotion. And I would definitely say that I'm not as emotional about the Celtics as I was during the, I would say the 2008 to 2012 range before I was covering the league uh, consistently. Um, I was just a madman and lived and died with every win and loss 
from that era. The KG, Rondo, Ray Allen, Paul Pierce era was just, it was, it was terrific. And I enjoyed every second of it as a fan. Now I still, I, I like just being completely honest. I, I still love the Celtics a lot and I still would consider myself a fan, but when I do write about them, I am as objective as I think anybody else. And I look at the numbers. I look at the film. I don't, you know, put on rosy glasses. I, I see what's there and I write about it. So like, there's no less reporting that goes into it when I write about the Celtics and the, the, the goal is to write the truth and to write what is happening in reality. So I don't let my fandom impact me in any way when I cover the Celtics or when I cover the Lakers or the Sixers or any of the teams that I would, you know, someone would, a Celtics fan would, would not like. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't think that that's, you know, that's obviously not my place to do. So, you know, you won't be getting any articles from me saying the Lakers suck because they don't suck. They're very good. Um, so I, I, long answer, short way to answer this question is just, yeah, I, uh, I, I am, I am a fan and I, I have not been able to beat it out of me. Nothing has been able to beat it out of me yet, but I do look for the truth when I write about any team. Yeah. Too deeply ingrained. I completely understand. Trust me. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's quite a, that's quite a journey and it seems like you got into the blogging sphere as I mean it was right out of school is sort of when you started blogging how what has surprised you most I guess about how that industry has changed from when you came out of Delaware to now where you are now huh. yeah that's a really that's a really interesting question I mean the true hoop network obviously does not exist anymore which was a is a real bummer um, but what I will say is that uh, you know, uh, Henry Abbott and, and Kevin Arnovitz, the two kind of, I guess, the co-founders of it, um, the talent that they recruited, uh, not even, of course, and I'm not talking about myself, there's so many talented writers came out of the True Hoop Network that are still in the business now who are doing wonderful things. And so I just think that the way that, you know, when I was first coming out, um, People who were blogging for any particular team site, they've now, you know, there's dozens of examples of of writers who who came from there who now have full-time jobs who do wonderful work in a lot of different ways and a lot of different mediums. And I just think that that's that's wonderful to see. And I wish that there was that fertile ground still. And there are still definitely... um, uh, places across the internet like that. I mean, at SB Nation, there are a lot of team sites that have a lot of talented writers doing work. And it would be wonderful if every one of them could have a full-time job doing this because um, it's wonderful. And I could not imagine myself doing anything else. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now we'll move on to the next part of the podcast here, which is just some general NBA questions. How does that sound? Perfect, man. Sounds good. All right. So we're a quarter, we're about a quarter of the way through the season. There's been a lot of, you know, a lot of fun things happening as always a very exciting start to the NBA season. But if you had to pick one individual player who has just absolutely blown you away so far this year, before the year, you would have never guessed that they're doing what they're doing now. Who would it be? Oh man. There's a lot of, uh, there's, yeah, there's like 10 guys 
I would yeah. say. Um, right off the top of my head, I mean, I got to say, I did not expect Trey Young to be as excellent as he has been offensively. I mean, his numbers are uh, just incredible for a second year guard. He's six one, a buck eighty. Uh, the way he draws. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the way he draws fouls. I mean, I was standing next to him early this morning and I was like, I could probably guard you. I think <laughs> I, I know I can't, but um, so he, the way he, he, he generates offense, his passing, his vision, his boldness from, you know, 35 feet, he takes the longest threes in the league. At least he did when I wrote about him a few weeks ago. And he's super accurate and he gets to the free throw line and he makes everyone around him better offensively. Now, defensively, he's kind of, he kind of is where I thought he would be. And he has, I don't know what his ceiling is on that side of the ball. And that's a tricky thing for the Atlanta Hawks to figure out as they go forward and try to become a consistent playoff team. Mm-hmm. But the leap that he made uh, offensively, I did not expect him to average nearly 30 points a game through the quarter mark. Yeah, he's been pretty ridiculous. I talked to uh, Sarah Spencer from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and she pinpointed just the three-point shooting has been much better this year because the last year it was high volume, but as far as this actual percentage goes, other than like like last third of the year probably, he wasn't that good. But now it's high volume and it's high percentage. So it's a lot of fun to watch too, definitely. Right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, last year he shot like 32% or something like that, I think, from three. This year it's above league average, So, and the volume is even higher. So he, he's he's been tremendous. I, I am, am, I'm interested to see if he makes the All-Star team. Yeah, he has, he has some, a little bit fiercer competition than uh, the past couple of years, but given his the highlight reels, at the very least, he should be in the running. Mm-hmm. Moving away from sure. individuals, who would be your surprise team of the first quarter of the NBA season? Uh, strictly because I was actually texting with Jay King this morning about this, and I want to say it because it'll piss him off. Um, <laughs> my surprise team is the uh, Los Angeles Lakers. And I say that because I knew they would be good, They have LeBron James. I expected LeBron to be excellent this year coming off of a season where, you know, he did not make the playoffs for the first time. I mean, he went to like eight straight finals and then he doesn't make the playoffs in his first year with the Lakers. So I knew he would be hungry. I knew he would be motivated. They add Anthony Davis. Uh, They got their team to get Anthony Davis. They sign a bunch of, uh, you know, veteran free agents, but guys who probably were not in demand just about anywhere else, Rajon Rondo, Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee. And they've been like, I, I didn't like, like, I thought they would be good for them to be 24 and three with one of the NBA's best defenses from wire to wire with an offense that is indestructible when LeBron is on the court, regardless of who's around him. I just think they're, they're incredible. And I mean, I, I, I don't know how the, comp- uh, the how the playoff picture is going to shake out, but I really hope that we get a Lakers-Clippers series at some point, be it in the semifinals or the conference finals, because I don't know which team I would pick, and that basketball is going to be insane. Yeah, I mean, we could only be so lucky, right? 
that'd be incredible. And that was actually one of the questions that I had set up for you here was that the Bucks and the Lakers have the two best records in the NBA. Everybody's sort of not, it's not a huge surprise, right? The Milwaukee just kind of picked up where they left off at the end of the last regular season. But like you, I was surprised that the Lakers matched this quickly on both sides of the floor. But the thing about the Lakers is that a large part, I mean, maybe not all their success, but a large part of their success is coming because AD and LeBron are both playing 35 minutes a game. So how do you see Frank Vogel going forward trying to kind of balance that minute, uh, the minute balance with continuing to keep pace with the best teams in the league? Yeah, that's that's for sure a concern. I mean, as I said, I think that, you know, LeBron last year, I mean, he's always been a big minute guy, someone who played 82 two seasons ago for the first time in his career. He takes care of his body, he invests over a million dollars a year in taking care of himself. So when he missed all that time because of the groin injury and then they kind of shut him down, I, I figured he was just gearing himself up for a monster run. So I'm, it's weird to say this, but I'm less concerned about his minute allotment than I am with AD's. AD has never made a deep playoff run. He's kind of has a reputation for, uh, you know, knickknack injuries that'll keep him out of the lineup. So I'm waiting for the sprained ankle that he's out for a whole week because of, and uh, I'm waiting to see in the playoffs what happens if he, you know, jams his finger and, uh, if he's <laughs> if it forces him out of action or if he's able to actually play through it, so I think that that's more of what I've I've got my eye on with those guys. But for sure, just because of how the league is, you know, you don't want to run your stars into the ground in relatively meaningless games right now in this time of the year. Uh, so I think it's definitely something worth keeping an eye on for sure. Yep, and then we were just talking about this star duo, but. Last month, he wrote an article about uh, how Russell Westbrook and James Harden are kind of trying to mesh their styles as far down in Houston there. Now that, you know, a month later, we're a quarter of the way through the year. How do you evaluate that fit so far and how can they continue to improve it? Well, how can they improve it? Russell Westbrook is no longer the worst three-point shooter in the league. That's like, <laughs> that's the, the best way to improve everything. Uh no, I think that overall, uh, how they've played together, I think how Russ has, uh, you know, accelerated their style of play. They're one of the, they still have one of the fastest paces in the league. Um, and that's really interesting based on, you know, if you were to compare them to how they've played the past couple seasons with CP there uh, instead. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, like, I think James is the best offensive player in the league and the trap heavy schemes that he's faced, I don't think will jibe in the playoffs, particularly when Eric Gordon is healthy and you have lineups with Eric Gordon and PJ Tucker in the corners and you have Clint Capella on the dunker spot and you have Russ just kind of on the wing. If you double with Russ's man, Harden is just going to hit Russ. And I, I trust Russell Westbrook to make plays on the four on three uh, in crunch time. I do. We won't know if he'll be able to do it until we see it, but the guy is a two-time scoring champion and an MVP, and he's still fundamentally playing at a high level. He's finishing around the basket. Uh, I would like to see him dial in a little bit more on the defensive end, 
but you know aesthetically and stylistically i think that their fit is fine i think that they need maybe another shooter maybe another player i mean hopefully this this is all solved when eric gordon comes back for them mm-hmm. but i think they'll probably look for another offensive weapon uh, at the trade deadline just because that's how Daryl Morey and that front office always operate. Always operates like that, exactly. And sort of on that same vein, Sunday marked the day where players who were signed over the offseason can get traded now, and obviously the NBA runs on the rumor mill for as far as the trades go for the next couple months. Uh, we already have names run around. Mark Stein, I think, tweeted out an hour ago that J. Rue Holiday is available. We're always talking about Kevin Love. From your perspective, who is the most likely player to get moved first? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, The player who I want to see move the most and I want to see in a relevant situation where I get to see him actually play basketball is Andre Iguodala. And the one team that I really want, like, I don't really want to see him go to the Lakers or to the Clippers. Um, I think if he were to go to one of those teams, they would have the, that would be kind of it. And that team would go to the finals if healthy. Uh, So what I would like for is for somehow Iguodala to end up on either the Rockets, who we just talked about, or uh, the Dallas Mavericks. And I think the Dallas Mavericks are like a legit, good, very good basketball team. I mean, we all know what they can do offensively, but to win in a playoff series, I think they need some more perimeter defense. Uh, they need someone who can match up with Paul George, with Kawhi, with LeBron, with whoever they face, with Harden, whoever they face in a playoff series. Because uh, Luka is just not there defensively, of course. But if they can get a player like Iguodala um, or even someone like, I mean, you just mentioned Drew Holiday. Mark Stein did report that earlier. Um, if they made a swing a trade like that somehow, uh, I don't want to say that they'd like go to the finals or anything like that, but I would, I don't think anybody would want to face the Dallas Mavericks in a seven game series, especially with the way Chris Porzingis has looked recently and looked the other night against the Milwaukee Bucks without Luca in the lineup. I mean, I think that this team could be very scary. They have a great head coach. They have a great style of play that they've all embraced. And if they get someone like Iguodala, watch out. Yeah, I mean, especially the holiday fit in Dallas is almost perfect because he's not really a ball-dominant point guard and he's excellent defensively. So I think you should probably be making right. that call pretty quickly if that if the report ends up being true. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. All right, so you, now we'll move on to the last part where it's some more fun questions. You said you're based in New York right now, yeah? Yes, yes. Do you have a go-to place to eat yet? go-to place to eat so mm-hmm. i live in i live in downtown brooklyn mm-hmm. and we live right next to this thing called the decalb food hall and it's basically just it's kind of like a food court except every stand is kind of a different style of food from a different part of the world more or less and my wife and i go there all the time when we can't decide on where we should go to eat because there's an option for whatever like it has literally every type of food you can imagine Mm -hmm. so we'll go there and it's delicious and uh, i like to try something new every time it's huge so 
I don't know when I'll get around to trying everything, hopefully someday. Um, but that's probably the, the place that we go to and frequent the most. Yeah, an admirable pursuit to try everything at the DeKalb Food Hall, absolutely. Um, yes. What's your favorite NBA arena? Favorite NBA arena? I mean, everyone will say I'm biased because whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I do like the atmosphere in TD Garden when it's a playoff game, and I've been to a lot of playoff games there, and I think it's extremely, it's extremely loud, extremely intimidating, I can only imagine, for the opposing team. I think it actually has an impact on uh, outcomes. And uh, besides that, um, I mean, what I really wish is that MSG had a good basketball team on a nightly basis because the environment there is also great. And uh, there was a game earlier this year when the Dallas Mavericks were in town and it was Chris Tapps, Porzingis' first game in New York since he was traded. And it was like the vitriol was just dripping from the ceiling. Like, I loved it. The crowd was into it. They booed KP every single touch. But their own team was terrible, but the Knicks ended up winning. And I think like they, the crowd got into KP's head a little bit. I thought it was just it was it was an awesome atmosphere. I wish that that team was good enough to make the playoffs and that I could attend playoff games in New York because there's nothing like good basketball at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and I don't think you're the only one who wishes that, that's for sure. But as far as the yeah. garden goes, what I actually found interesting, so you, you know, people can say you're biased all you want, but when Joe, uh, when the Sixers were in town last week, Joel Embiid said that game two of the 2018 series was the loudest building he has ever been in for a basketball game, and he was in Toronto for game seven of the second round last year. So that's all I would say to anybody who accuses you of being biased. If Joel Embiid says it was louder at TD than it was at Scotiabank Arena for Kawhi Leonard's game-winning buzzer beater, then I just don't know what to tell you. I didn't even know he said that. When he, he said that? Yeah, yeah he said that. Uh, he said it before the game, before he dropped 38-13 and 13 on the Celtics. But, yeah, he said that the loudest environment he yeah. had was <laughs> like a big like 10-point or 15-point comeback or something like that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean that, yeah, the crowds there are great. And uh, I just think like speaking as someone who has never played in an NBA game, I could not imagine being on the, the opposing team in a playoff, like in a, in a pivotal playoff moment coming out of a huddle. It's just so loud and everyone is like hammered drunk. It's just, it's a, it's a great atmosphere. It's fantastic. Um, Who is uh throughout your career so far, who has been your favorite player or person to interview? Hmm. Wow. Um, I mean, I mean, to be honest, most NBA players are a joy to talk to. I mean, you'll catch some who are in moods and just like any other human being and they'll, they'll be polite, but uh, they'll be a little bit more reserved than you would like as a journalist. Um, I would say uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, spend a couple of days in Malibu with Jimmy Butler. And uh, this was the summer before his first year with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And so he had a little bit of a reputation, but it was not, I, I would say it was not anything like his reputation now in terms of uh, being a little bit of a disruptor in locker rooms 
And so I went into it, you know, kind of knowing a little bit about him, but I, I just, he's as open as anyone. Um, he is willing to spar back and forth if you challenge him. Uh, he's really good natured. He's super intelligent and uh, he's really funny. I mean, I, I would say like talking to him and, and him being into the interview and just our time together, uh, I appreciated it. And uh, so he's, he's definitely up there for me, I would say. Yeah, he seems at the very least like a very fascinating person to interview, even after all the various uh, things he's gone through over the last few years, we'll say. Right. <laughs> Um, what's something about your job that you feel like other people don't know or don't really understand? I would, I would say the time that it, it, that it requires, um, it's, I'm not complaining because I enjoy it, but it is, it's a job that you have to immerse yourself in, uh, almost 24 seven, uh, there's so much basketball every night and so many things are happening on a 24 hour basis that it can be overwhelming. And if you, you know, you can't take a Saturday night off from watching the NBA because anything can happen. There's probably like seven or eight or nine games going on. And, you know, if you take that night off the next day at five o'clock or three 30, there'll be another game. And then that night there's five more games. So you can't play catch up during the season. And so, I mean, between watching games to, uh, you know, prepping for interviews to actually conducting interviews to writing, to thinking up story ideas, to, uh, I, I just, the, the list of, of, of things that you need to do for the job is, is all encompassing and, it, you need to love it, I think, to do it well. Uh, and that, that probably applies to a, a lot of jobs in a lot of different fields. Um, but covering the NBA is, it's pretty intense during the regular season. I think it's more intense than uh, someone on the outside looking in might think it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And now you've been, on, you've been on this gig for about a decade now, come a long way. And obviously the industry has changed quite drastically over the course of that time period. But just if you take a step back, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew back when you were just exiting the University of Delaware? So when I graduated, you know, social media was was in existence, at least Twitter was in existence. Mm. Um, and I would say, honestly, like the the cultivation of a social media personality and an online brand, making yourself a brand, making yourself known for one particular thing or, or, or a particular personality. Um, I think there's obvious value in that. And I don't think coming out of college, I realized how important it was. And I tried to put off Twitter for as long as I could and so I'm um, even today constantly tinkering with, uh, you know, what is, what is right? How am I perceived online? It's just a, it's something that I wish there was a class that I could have taken in college on, but obviously it wasn't as ingrained in the culture as it is now. 
Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think that journalism and social media go hand in hand in so many different ways uh, for the good and the bad. And that journalism schools, I don't know if they do this now, but they should teach students how to function on social media as journalists because it's it's absolutely critical in terms of uh, you know growing yourself and and getting work and getting your name out there I think it's it's just it's very very important yeah it's almost I mean Twitter is inseparable from the news cycle now and you know no way you could have predicted it way back then but I would certainly hope that that's a big part of uh, journalism classes nowadays right All right, Michael, that'll be it. Thank you so much again for agreeing to come on and chat with me. I appreciate your honestness and honesty and candidness throughout the interview. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liam. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you, listener, for tuning into the Press Pass podcast. I am your host, Liam McEwen, signing off.